This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You bet is something that a lot of folks are going to be saying increasingly around sports. Now, let's be honest. A lot of people already were doing it, Carol, (laughs) uh, but now they can do it legally. And that's very exciting. And it does mean a shift uh, in a lot of money. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars potentially uh, related to sports wagering. So let's break it down. Jay Masareka, he is head of gaming and travel investment banking at KeyBank Capital Markets, joining us on the phone from Cleveland. Hey, your job got a lot more interesting this year, I feel. I mean, it was cool before, but this is this is kind of a big deal. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, especially since uh, gaming industry was kind of uh, slowing down in terms of growth, and this uh, legalization of sports betting has definitely uh, given a boost in the arm of the gaming industry. So there's a significant amount of sports betting that you'll be seeing in near term uh, coming on. So exciting times for gaming industry, for sure. Well, what's interesting, Jay, yeah, exciting times, but some states are slow to embrace uh, the decision by the Supreme Court. And that includes your home state where you are, Ohio, um, which from something I read, you find kind of frustrating. Uh, yes, I do. And uh, th- there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, one is the legislative and licensing process is pretty cumbersome for gaming in general. And that's kind of slowing down uh, some of these states, including Ohio. So in Ohio, it's expected that uh, constitutional amendment will be required uh, and not a simple legislation. So that would take probably a year or two to get through. So Ohio has been late in terms of getting uh, commercial gaming on. I think it will be late in terms of getting sports betting on as well. So closer to home for us here in New York, Jay, New Jersey has, by all accounts, been more aggressive. It feels like you know, you're looking at uh, DraftKings, an app, I believe, that they are piloting with New Jersey, the Borgata launching its own uh, mobile app. So are people really looking to New Jersey to see maybe the, the potential or other states and, and companies, for that matter, looking to see the potential here? Yes, New Jersey is expected to have probably one of the best potential in terms of sports betting. And one of the reasons being uh, they have done it right in terms of their mobile strategy. So uh, not only do they have a mobile channel in addition to the physical sports books, but they also allow the remote registration, which means that you can just get on an app and uh, register yourself for this sports betting, which is not available in most of the states uh, that will be legalizing soon. So if you look at uh, any of the international markets where uh, online betting is already legalized. In European uh, markets, European soccer handled 70% is online. In Asia, basketball handled 90% online. So unless you have that online and remote registration, it's difficult to uh, uh, realize the true potential of the market. And New Jersey 
Jersey is doing it. So as we are looking at New Jersey and New York legalizing it, right. we expect the per capita spend to be almost twice in New Jersey uh, compared to New York. So what does this mean, Jay, for the early mover advantage, such as New Jersey, such as New York, who are ahead of the game from other states? What is that going to mean maybe potentially for the industry and who grabs the chunk of the revenues out of uh, the mobile uh, or legalized sports uh, betting space? I believe in New Jersey there are racetracks that will probably win in this, especially Meadowlands that's closer to New York City, uh, because that will get a lot of traffic, traffic from New York uh, that will play at Meadowlands. Um, also, uh, you know, some of the European operators like William Sell, uh, DraftKings has done uh, done a great deal in terms of uh, making itself, uh, you know, uh, easily available in New Jersey uh, through the app. So uh, some of these would turn out to be the winners, I we, believe. We did a great story on Bloomberg Business Week. It was much earlier this year in the spring about William Hill, uh, you know, talking about their background, their heritage, but how they are betting big on American sports and really positioning themselves um, really well for it. So, you know, I think about what investors need to think about with this market. I mean, is there a way to play it that they can kind of position themselves uh, for, you know, in front of those those folks that are going to really win long term? Yeah, I mean, some of the regional operators with uh, multi-state operations are probably the best way to uh, play that. And I don't know if you st- saw the story this week about uh, Eldorado investing in Williams Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, they now own 20% of Williams Hill's U.S. and have about $50 million investment in uh, Williams Hill PLC. So uh, those are going to be the ones, Eldorado, Boyd Gaming, MGM Caesars are already there. So those are some of the companies that would be the winners. So um, we, we are pretty bullish on, on these players. Jay Masaryka, head of gaming and travel investment banking at KeyBank Capital Markets there in Cleveland, joining us on the phone. Thanks so much for your time. This is something yeah. that will fundamentally change people's relationship with sports. I mean, I remember talking to Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, yeah. about this over the last couple of years. The NBA, I didn't get a chance to ask Jay this question, but the NBA has been out ahead of this in many ways. But interesting to see, since we are uh, here on opening day for the NFL, what the NFL decides to do, what baseball decides to do, all the big sports, soccer, obviously, it's a huge deal, and tennis, taking us back to the U.S. Open last week. Right, especially thinking about what it could mean in terms of pocketing maybe billions of dollars from this, especially for something like the NFL. We are taking a look at chips, everybody. You heard Charlie Pella just talk about uh, the chip sector under pressure selling off uh, today. A lot of it has to do with KLA 10 core, the big reason for why investors are kind of running uh, in the uh, Thursday trade. Let's put it into perspective, though. Anand Srinivasan is senior semiconductor and hardware analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, along with uh, the chip dude, uh, Jason Kelly. You've upgraded me from chip boy. I, <laughs> I like it. I did upgrade you because, of course, Jason has followed chips uh, in uh, one of his past jobs here, uh, I think, at Bloomberg, right? Previous life, absolutely. Yeah, back in the day, I was alongside Ian King. I learned everything I know about chips from him <sighs> so and cool. Anon, of course. And I continue to learn from Anon. So what's going on here? Because uh, we're seeing the sector really take uh, a beating here. Absolutely. Look, I mean, there's fears of a chipmaker um, 
weakening cycle um and these guys these companies are uh, these stocks are extremely forward looking and any whiff of a demand weakness could potentially disproportionately hurt these stocks now uh, the the fear of the chipmaker cycle weakness is rational but there are some moving parts if you look at it the pe's they're within historical ranges but you have to look at the components of it which is the e the earnings if the earnings power of 2018 and 2019 is weak and then, then then the PEs are potentially higher than they ought to be, and they'll get pretty badly whacked if uh, the demand doesn't come through for 2018, 2019. Um, is this, what's going on, though? Is it Does it play to a bigger macro story of growth slowing down and so there's not as much demand for their products? Semi, semiconductor stocks are generally considered leading indicators yeah. so yeah. to the extent that and they're typically work on double derivatives so the rate of um, sales growth or the rate of sales acceleration weakens a little bit then um, the stocks will get um, pretty badly beaten. If you look at it from, from sort of the mid-16 period onwards we've had a phenomenal run in these names right mm -hmm. uh, both from a multiple perspective and an earnings perspective um, and it's been multiple factors. Uh, data center growth has been very strong. PCs haven't um, uh, disappointed us too much. Uh, phones have been okay. And memory content has grown within all of these uh, different items. I mean, if uh, I just put up a chart on the Bloomberg to mm -hmm. take a look from March of like 2016, and mm -hmm. you're right, if you look at that, it's like almost not quite straight up, but it's a pretty And, and Micron, which has given back 9% today, went from 10 to 60 yeah. Right. Yeah. So we have to take this in perspective. But then again, you have to look at, OK, where do we go from here? Right. Right. And the contention with mo which which I agree with in, in the semiconductor cycle has become compressed, both in terms of amplitude and in terms of frequency. The usually um, high peak to trough sort of uh, compression, both in prices and, and multiples, hasn't hasn't occurred in the last few mini cycles. But. Again, the, the fear is that we're, we're about due for one. And right. so when you look at some of the specific names to Anand, I mean, AMD, I feel like we're calling their number almost every day in terms of just a stellar stock performance. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm looking uh, at the Bloomberg right now. Year-to-date change up 172%. I mean, just mm -hmm. a phenomenal run uh, for that name, which always has been in the background to Intel, as you know, far better than I. So as you start to go name by name, what stands out for you, especially amid all the kind of non-business drama that has affected the sector too? Th that's, a, that's a great question. But in a semiconductor downturn- That's why I call the correlations, the correlations uh, sort of all converge. Right. They, you, you can um, uh, differentiate between the high-quality name and the low-quality name um, or uh, the poor executor and the stronger executor. But in a semiconductor downturn, everybody gets swept Everybody up. gets hammered. So wow. who Unfortunately. You, so who? So if you look at a company yeah. like Texas, Texas right. Instruments, is going to be extremely um, um, much more better positioned relative to somebody like an AMD. If you look at um, an analog devices, that might be much better positioned relative to an Nvidia or, or a Micron. Um, I think there are pockets of uh, of uh, potential. Uh, weakness companies that have very narrow exposures, yeah. um, companies that have have a history of execution issues, uh, companies that have been. But on the other hand, um, you can also say that industrial and autos have expanded their semiconductor content pretty disproportionately relative to the other sectors. Are they due for a correction? Right. So I can talk on both sides of my mouth um, <laughs> on this one. Um, but generally, generally speaking, I feel like 
Yes, there are places, particularly in um, power semiconductors, where lead times are in multiple tens of weeks. Um, I think uh, prices have also become stretched. I think those areas could see some correction. Right. Um, those are some pockets. Uh, memory is um, uh, is a particularly interesting market. On one hand, you can say that servers are strong, cloud is expanding, and DRAM content in servers and uh, NAND content in servers is expanding. On the other hand, if there's more supply coming online, then yeah. the pricing of those products gets hammered, and price times units is revenue. And uh, that has a big impact for companies like Micron. Should we get ready for other chip companies to come out and do something similar to KLA 10 Core? Um, it, it's, uh, the, the, the equipment stocks, interestingly, I was just talking to Jason about this earlier, which is that they used to have a nice, uh, diverse revenue stream between companies that made their own chips, um, such as Intel and Texas Instruments, um, foundries that made chips for other people, such as TSMC and memory companies, Micron, Samsung, etc. Now, if you look at that pie chart, it's not so evenly distributed mm. anymore. The likes of TSMC and the likes of Micron and Samsung disproportionately cause revenues for um, applied materials, KLA 10 core, LAM research. Right. So if there's any weakness in the sales here and there's any pullback in spending here, that's going to affect these equipment companies. Right. But here's the here's the additional <laughs> converse factor, which is that if they pull back on equipment spending, which means that supply for the out years is now going to be contained. So the supply growth is in uh, the oversupply potentially co- w- won't be as bad as you initially right. thought. Right. So right. maybe then as that's, long as the demand is there, still. as long yeah. as the demand is there, exactly. I yeah. think supply is is being looked at very very aggressively, but the demand picture is unclear. You could have a situation where cloud demand remains robust, corporate IT spending seems to be very good, PCs yeah. are okay, and um, the cycle amplitude could be um, much smaller. I'm just going to say, I'm sorry, Jason, but he's now the chip dude. Well, he's always been the chip dude. I'm just like, I, I, that's why I'm, I'm more comfortable be being one. the chip boy. Okay, but, you know, it's like I'm just a guy who's like dabbled in chips over the years. This guy <laughs> is the un, uh, unrivaled expert on this. I mean, it is a fascinating business to follow because you really well, do see such an – you get such an amazing window yes. into not just the broader electronics market but broader consumer demand. As Anand said, you know, the car market, everything. I mean, everything has a chip, a chip in it. Mm-hmm. But and you know you go back to April. You, I know I have a chip in it, but I have a lot of chips on my shoulder now. No. Mm. Uh, but you go back to like April, and that the socks was beaten up again, mm-hmm. right? And we bounced off of it, mm-hmm. so it's really yeah. been an erratic chart uh, here in 2018. Anam, thank you. Thank you for Can I call me. you Chip Dude? Yeah. <laughs> call me Chip whatever King? You like. What would you like? Chip King, you just I like. Tell me. I like that. Anand Srinivasan, senior semiconductor and hardware analyst, Chip Dude for Bloomberg Intelligence <laughs> here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. You, you are know listening you're jealous, to Jason boy. Kelly and Carol Masser. She's still at it. <laughs> Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. I feel like I just want to like drop the mic and go. I've got drive-by <laughs> truckers playing as an intro to one of my favorite, favorite writers uh, of all time, Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week. That, of course, is a reference to the fantastic book that he wrote about the Trump White House and Steve Bannon's role in getting there. Josh joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Josh, I feel like every week at this point we're saying, whoa. What a week in Washington. But <laughs> this one seems to be 
one to remember. Take us inside the White House right now. What's going on? Oh, it's just absolute chaos. I mean, that's that's sort of the natural order of things most weeks. But I think more so this week uh, than, than any recent week I can think of, uh, first because of the broadside from Bob Woodward, the excerpts of his book started to leak. Um, you know, it became clear, uh, as Woodward often does, that he had good material. That, you know, the White House um, seemed blindsided by the fact that this book was even coming, even though most people knew it was, it was due to arrive pretty soon. Uh, and then a day later, in, in and in a weird way, um, a, a bigger shock was this anonymous op-ed, uh, apparently from a senior administration official, published in the New York Times that has all of Washington in a guessing game and has Trump himself in an absolute fury over over the you know coup or whatever you want to call it going on in the midst of his administration. Cataclysmic. I just got to say, that thing hit, and I think we were all like, what? Um, what has this done Josh, you've seen a bunch of different White Houses. What has this done to the White House, the office of the president? Well, I, th- I think, to be honest, it's 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 frightened Trump. Um, you know, he, he has been more and more isolated over the past six months or so. As a lot of the original people that he won in the campaign that were in his administration have departed. Uh, some of the steadying figures like uh, Gary Cohn, his former NEC director, uh, people like that. Uh, I think Trump, even before the Woodward book and the op-ed hit, felt as though there were fewer and fewer people around that he really knew that he could really trust. And the double blow of the book and then this op-ed, which claimed that there is a resistance inside his own administration of dozens and dozens of officials trying to undermine him, uh, I, I think really spooked him in a way that you can see in how he reacted to all this on Twitter. The idea uh, he's calling it treason and, and that you know people should bombard The New York Times with phone calls. Uh, it's, it's clearly gotten under his skin. It's something that bothers him. And when Trump gets in these kind of moods, you know, the White House goes into a kind of defensive crouch like a lockdown where you know most officials are is likely to call a reporter to ask what's going on as we reporters mm-hmm. are to call the white house officials everybody just wow. wants to know what everybody else is hearing and so what are the practical implications of this in terms of the actual day-to-day running of this administration at a time where there are trade negotiations going on, at a time where a Supreme Court nominee is trying to get confirmed up on Capitol Hill. You've got a new tax bill uh, being introduced as well. How do things slow down? How do things get compartmentalized, if at all, in this sort of scenario? Well, the the practical day-to-day effect of all this is that there is suddenly a mole hunt going on in the White House that Trump is absolutely consumed with. Trump wants to find the leaker. You've got the press going around to every cabinet official um, trying to get them to deny that they wrote this op-ed. And so it's all a big distraction from uh, you know the day-to-day work of the administration, whether that's hashing out some kind of a trade deal to save NAFTA with Canada or whether it's trying to get Brett Kavanaugh confirmed as Supreme Court justice. So as we see every week in the Trump administration, it's a juggling act between doing the business of government and trying to deal with the circus-like atmosphere of life in Trump's White House. You know what's interesting, too? I've been reading a bunch of different things that, yep, we're concerned about, you know, maybe the state of the White House, the president specifically. But I think the other issue is that you've got other people 
taking action so that the president cannot. There was an interesting uh, Bloomberg Opinion column written uh, that said, you know, are we in crisis with just that happening alone? That, in other words, the person who was elected isn't necessarily making all the decisions. Other people are. I, I think that that's, that's right. I mean, on some level, you know, somebody who does a fair bit of reporting on the White House in and, and Washington, the, the underlying story of that op-ed was, was fairly well known. And you've seen pieces of it reflected in, in reporting in Bloomberg and the New York mm-hmm. Times and the Washington Post that uh, senior officials have tried to curb Trump's worst impulses, mm-hmm. that they've tried to steer him away right. from making sudden and, and consequential decisions like pulling out of a trade agreement with South Korea. But we haven't had as blatant an illustration as Gary Cohn stealing a memo off his desk, which is what Bob Woodward's book uh, alleges. And so I think it's brought into sharp relief um, this, this, this tendency within the White House of Trump's senior officials trying to compartmentalize and trying to curb his worst impulses. Unbelievable. What a week. Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the phone from our nation's capital. We will continue to follow this story with him and other colleagues down there. Always great to talk to him. Get that context, Carol. Yeah, just to kind of take a step back and, and dig into it. We appreciate it. Again, the NFL season kicking off, uh, and our next guest is known well for covering politics big time. But he's written a book, uh, as you might know, about uh, 21st century Washington D.C. But uh, he's now got a new book out. It's all about the NFL. It's called Big Game: The NFL in Dangerous Times. We welcome award-winning journalist Mark Leibovich, chief national correspondent at the New York Times Magazine. He joins us uh, on the phone in New York. Hey, Mark, great to have you here with great Jason. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you here. Um, Tell us about this book. Uh, it's really fascinating kind of how you got to it. I mean, you're a big NFL fan. <laughs> I am. Right? Well, well, first of all, I mean, that was such a generous introduction. I should just, I feel like I should just hang up and let you guys. <laughs> no, don't hang up. Don't no, hang I up. won't hang up. I won't up. I'll, I'll stay on the line. No, um, yeah, I, I came to this as a fan. Um, my day job is, is politics. And as you mentioned, you know, I, I've been sort of uh, writing about this swamp for a long, long time and needed a little break and, and realized that there is no escaping um Certainly, politics in the NFL, and there's no escaping swampiness in the NFL. So I, I jumped in a couple of years ago, and and that was even before Donald Trump sort of, uh, you know, politicized things even up to eleven. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just I realized that that this was a whole other world that I didn't know about, and I didn't fully appreciate the degree to which these thirty-two sort of owners really sort of run our lives. And and I thought it was sort of a fascinating subculture to, uh, to sort of try to bring to life. Well, and let's talk about that, Mark, because that was the thing that really jumped out at me as I was reading the book, starting to read the book, which is this culture of ownership. And I think yeah. especially for Bloomberg listeners, it's a class of people that we're all very familiar with to totally. some extent. And yet you go several levels deeper. What were some of the idiosyncrasies that really jumped <laughs> out at you about these owners specifically? Well, first of all, one of the first things you learn when you go to work at the NFL at Park Avenue is these people must be addressed as Mr., 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 like it's like Mr. Kraft, Mr. Jones, Mr. Snyder. It is uh, very important. It is a tick that is uh, you know very, very tightly enforced. And 
I think all of them are men except for a couple of uh, you know wives and daughters who inherited teams, maybe two or three. So, it, it, but it is, there's this level of deference that is is unusual, even not, not just in corporate America, but also in, in the political world that mm-hmm. I operate in. Um, also, it's just like football is the only sport where they like they do these cutaway spots to the owners and their owners' boxes. Right. Like, you know, we have these sort of Roman gladiators down below and their owners. Like, it's like a horse race almost, and it's sort of bizarre. I never sort of wanted that, but no, I mean. 32 owners have an incredible amount of influence on how the league is run. Uh, Roger Goodell basically runs a trade organization that is obviously very, very, um, you know, very, someone pays, people pay a lot of attention to, but he's paid very well for it. But, um, you know, the culture reminds me a little bit of the Senate, except that these people don't have to run for re-election every four or six years. All right. So now you have to tell us about, uh, I think, the email you got from um, Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Yeah. No, that's where it all began. I mean, I, I actually, I am, you know, I don't want to disqualify qualify myself from people even considering buying this book. But uh, yeah, I grew up in New England and I still root for them and the, the Patriots. And I you know, had a little side project. I wanted to write about Tom Brady. And, and after sort of working on his agent for a couple of years, they agreed to do something for the Times Magazine. And it all began with an email from Tom that just said, Tom Brady here. And I felt like saying, you know, yeah, and I'm Santa Claus. Right? It's like, yeah. but How's Giselle? Really hey, Tom, right? <laughs> you know what? I, went out, I never actually, I, I visited with him a few times and never laid eyes on her, except uh, until like the last Super Bowl. I actually was in the sort of uh, media availability area right after the Super Bowl, and Giselle was running around congratulating Philadelphia Eagles in various states of undress, uh, telling them they played a great game. And it was like you know, Tom's last move in his playbook. Like, he might have just beat me on the field, but get a load of this. Right, right. It's so, <laughs> amazing. But that's as close I got to Giselle. So bring it back to your regular day job, because right. Trump plays a pretty prominent role in this. And as you say, didn't when you started this project, but this has become really one of his favorite hobby horses, the NFL. He loves the NFL as an issue. I mean, I think as far as having a personal grievance against the league, he has that too. I mean, which is usually the, the two of those things often go hand in hand with with the president. I mean, he has tried to, been trying to get an NFL team or get into the league, this exclusive club, for about four decades, most recently in 2014 when he tried to buy the Buffalo Bills. And, um, you know, I don't know if it's a mark of the priorities we have in our society, but the consolation prize is he gets to wind up in the White House uh, <laughs> heckling from the bully pulpit, right? So. Uh, it is sort of bizarre, but they really wanted no part of him. A lot of them had, you know, history with him in business. They thought he was a clown. They didn't think he'd be good for the league, and they didn't want to be his business partners. So now he gets to terrorize them, and and it's um, yeah, it's amazing. Boy, the fate has has sort of worked out because he can't be in their in their club, but he can be in their heads. We'd be amiss to not ask you because of all of the the reporting you've done on politics in yeah. Washington, what you make yeah. of the current environment. Uh, well, which part? You see the current well, this week, the book, the last twenty four hours, the book, the, anon- the anonymous op ed. Uh, like did someone else write a book this week? Oh, God, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, the plan. No, no. Here's the plan. All along. I was going to spend three years writing about football. Then we we're going to have Colin Kaepernick and Nike come out like at the, end of, at the beginning of the right? week. So that would be the first. And that's fine. That was all timely. But then Woodward came and ruined it. Now, Woodward. I mean, look. It, it's, I will. I will say this. It is. Um, it, every week is pretty much interesting. Is really interesting here. I mean, this anonymous. Um, uh, Op-ed story that our paper ran yesterday. I mean, I, I will yeah. tell you, I don't know who the, who the author is. I don't 
know anyone who does. So, well, I mean, I know a couple people who do, but they don't talk to me, and I don't talk to them, and they're not going to tell me anyway. Um, it's all pretty bizarre. Um, it is, you know, it's bizarre, especially since I'm now focusing on the book this week and next week to be in a bit of a parallel universe. But it's just inescapable, and well, they do make it interesting. I mean, in a, in a way, the two reality shows of, of America, the, the two biggest reality shows of America, whether it's the NFL or Donald Trump America, keep colliding. Wait, I guess you. Ten seconds. NFL sure. is is it on the decline? Um, Quickly, maybe, maybe not. But I'll be watching tonight. I mean, that's sort of the bottom line. And I think a lot of you know tens of millions of others will be watching too. So they'll be yeah. fine. Well, absolutely, every, they should be watching and also picking up your book, Big Game: The NFL and Dangerous Times. Mark Leibovich, great stuff. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. We are about 11 minutes, 10 minutes, I should say, away from the close of U.S. trading to help us make sense of a market that is trying to find find its way as we get into the school year. John Trainer, Chief Investment Officer of People's United Advisors. They oversee about $6 billion. He joins us by phone from Bridgeport, Connecticut. John, great to be with you. So... We are looking at a market that, as I said, seems to be starting to maybe find its way out of this over-enthusiastic place that it's been, at least, of late. What do you make of it? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because I'm looking at my Bloomberg screen and I've got a lot of green on the screen. And, you know, that's actually – that's good. You know, the red seems to be in the tech area. But, you know, what we want to see is a broadening of the market. Um, You know, it's been a little tumultuous today, and uh, we certainly don't want to see too many days like this. But a a move away from sort of the, you know, the the, the FANG stocks plus Microsoft to a broader market could be be very, very helpful. So, you know, I'd like to see – you know, a broadening of the market because I think that'll help us move higher as we uh, go into the uh, the second half of the year. Does that mean that you're upping your position to stocks at this point, or what? No, we're probably at, we've been all year uh, overweight uh, equities and overweight the U.S. We've been, our under our big underweight has been in emerging markets all year, and we're sticking with that. And you know, we're my economic presentations this fall. We're all they all seem to focus on one question: Is the tax reform going to lead to this virtuous cycle, or is it going? Is it really just a sugar rush, and we're going to go back to that sort of the the two two and a half percent growth malaise? We're really in the camp that this the tax reform uh, will help elongate the recovery, which is positive for equity markets. But we don't think you're going to get to a sustainable three, three and a half percent. That we're probably going to go back, you know, to that two to two and a half percent growth, mm-hmm. which is probably, believe it or not, better for the market than if we had that high growth, because then the Fed won't be under pressure to uh, to raise rates as much uh, if we did see sustainable high growth. So I think I think that the market. It will do well, but don't uh, don't depend on uh, tremendous earnings growth next year. So, John, I wanted to ask you about some specific names and specific sectors. One of which is retail, which seems to be 
seems to have gone through quite an interesting past few months, certainly with kind of the haves and have nots, but it doesn't break down so easily. I believe TJX is a name that you like. Tell us why. Yeah, I'll tell you, that's been a name that we've owned for a while. And, you know, we really have taken a look at our retail holdings and said, you know, who has the business model that can compete with Amazon? Who has a business model where consumers do want to go into your store and check out the goods? And that's that's TJ Maxx. So it's been a, it's been a good stock for us. It's a well-managed company. But really, I mean, our, our decision started and ended with who has the model that can compete with Amazon? We think that's what what TJX has been able to do. I gotta say, much to my husband's chagrin, I love TJ Maxx. Um, and what's interesting is you, you and my wife. <laughs> <laughs> it's really kind of sad. I mean, the stock's up forty five percent this year. What's interesting yep. is, you know. I do think about the retail model, right? And they do get you go. I don't even know if they have an online site. They do get you to go into the store. What is it? Is it just about people getting a good deal on really good merchandise? Well, that's it. And and the fact that they've done a very good job of turning over inventory. Yeah. Uh, there are other retailers out there. And again, my best analyst is my wife. Well, she'll walk in there and say, this is the same stuff that was in here a few months ago. TJ Maxx has been able to turn over their inventory. So they've that's created so a, 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 an environment where consumers do need to stop in every few weeks just to see what's on the rack. And you're not going to get that in the online experience. That really is something that they've done that's very unique to them. It's there's so a true. treasure hel- there's a treasure hunt element <laughs> to it. Treasure hunt mentality. Yeah, That's what it, I tell my husband. It was well known <laughs> in our family for a while because they always had good cat t-shirts. My one of my sons loved to collect like cats in various, you know, galactic cat, taco cat. TJ Maxx great for cat shirts. That's all I can say. You're, you're out of my area of expertise. <laughs> I, will, I will believe you. Yeah. All right. So from TJ Maxx we go to Microsoft, also a name that you like. What you're thinking here? Yeah, you know, and it's interesting that on a day like today, uh, you know, Microsoft has 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 hung in there nicely. Um, we have aired on the on the more the software side, the cloud computing side, in our technology selections. You know, not that we're negative on the on the hardware side, but we think that that you know, if, if business capital investment is going to increase, and we've just taken a look at the trend so far, businesses are not spending as much on hardware; they're spending a lot on software. So. You know, when, when we take a look at our uh, our tech names, they tend to be software dependent rather than hardware dependent. You know, and you, you saw the news on the semiconductors today, and you know it's unfortunate that Micron is getting hit because it's a very good company. Uh, but are you buying on the of- selling Micron? You know, we we're not. We don't own it, uh, and it's not one that we would be uh, we would be buying. And you know, again, it it sort of plays right into our thesis that we didn't want to be hardware heavy. We want to be software heavy in the tech sector. John Trainer, Chief Investment Officer at People's United Advisors up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, overseeing about $6 billion, joining us on the phone there, not holding it against him that he went to Villanova. It's a fine school. I just like it when Georgetown beats them in basketball, which never, ever, ever <laughs> happens anymore. It happened about 20 years ago and notably didn't happen uh, many years before that. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.